Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Two Throw Over Noise. I'm one of your co-hosts. My name is Jeff. Joining me from across the state line, as usual, my uh, co-host, Mark A. Johnston. Mark, how you doing? We're, we're getting really close to opening day now, but we are. You can you can go outside and you can take a deep breath and you can smell baseball in the air. It's a mixture between uh, fresh cut grass and hot dogs, I think. Just don't get them confused. You don't want fresh cut hot dogs and no freshly. <laughs> I don't know. You don't put boiled, mustard on grass. Yeah, uh, so. boiled lawn. I, I don't know how. I don't know where to go for that. Like anyway, that. man, I, having a good time though. I mean, even though it's still only spring training, we've got some some seriously important baseball going on. Something that people are into. Yeah, uh, obviously the WBC, we talked a lot about that last week. By our next show, it'll be all over with. Just a couple of games left to go right now. I also, I've got some more important baseball I want to talk about as well. But first, let's let's start it off. Let's kick it off, right? Let's get into our BP segment here so that we're all warmed up. First of all, Mark, it's it's not a kangaroo court issue, but it is something I did want to bring up. One of our, our listeners, John Payne, brought this to my attention last week when uh, I made mention that uh, Yankees were were involved in Seinfeld more than anybody else, baseball player-wise. And uh, we, we talk about Keith Hernandez all the time, especially Keith Hernandez in, in Seinfeld, because it's one of the greatest episodes ever, The Boyfriend, right? Yep. Uh, so we've talked about Danny Tartable actually being in two separate episodes of Seinfeld. John wanted to remind me that The Boyfriend is technically a double episode. It, oh. was, it was a supersized or, or something. It was technically it's two episodes. But then that reminded me that Keith Hernandez was also in the finale. He was sitting That's in right, the he was. he was sitting in the courtroom. I'm not sure if he had any lines per se, but he was there and it does count as an episode. So technically, Ooh. Keith Hernandez could be it could be three episodes of Seinfeld. All right. So now that we've got that out of the way, I mean, we've always trust me, there are there are more Seinfeld references and nobody counted them from last week. I'm a little <laughs> no, I had a big prize ready to go, but now it's gone. So don't worry about it's it. It's gone. Yeah. It left. Yeah, I was yeah. just too disappointed. Uh, a, a, a couple of other things here. So while actually doing some reading and research for this week's topic, uh, I was reading a little bit on Elston Howard, who we've talked about before. He was a very influential guy, not just as a baseball player, but some of the things he added to baseball. Uh, we talked about how one of the things he did was he invented weighted donuts, for batters in the on-deck circle to use, which replaced the iconic shot of guys standing there with like eight bats in their hands, swinging them. Before yes. I could, I can't do that. Like I put three in my hands, and they they all want to go different directions. And credit to them for that. But uh, he is also credited with being this. I found rather unique that somebody would credit somebody with this but he is credited as being the first player to throw up the horns to represent two outs as opposed to you know the peace uh, sign which right. but but you know you throw up the horns and there's more space so it's a little bit easier to see and you're also telling your you know your teammates to rock on and all that good stuff that's true that yeah exactly doing the whole deal thing yeah there you go I don't know how they could prove that that he was the first person to do that, but okay. <laughs> I don't know if there's any proof, but he he did say so, and you know 
Rock and rollers are very trustworthy. I don't think he would say that. Elston Howard is not that, wasn't that kind of guy. He'd just be like, somebody would say he did it, and then it would be fact. That I was talking about Dio. Anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, let's see. You mentioned the WBC and some staggering numbers of viewership. I mean, if I yeah. think... I have not talked to a baseball fan that I know that has not been completely enthralled with this. And I, I think that's been the case since its inception. But some of these numbers from some of these other countries are staggering. When Japan played Korea, that was viewed by over 63 million viewers. Wow. That is a lot of people. In Japan, 48% of households were watching that game. That's amazing. So 63 million viewers watched that. The most watched World Series game was in 1980, and that had 54 million people watching it. Wow. I mean, this WBC is is very intriguing to apparently not just baseball fans here in the U.S. I mean, I know in, in Japan and Korea, you can go to like movie theaters and watch it, which would be cool because you're with other fans. So it's kind of like being at a stadium. The, the wave yeah. doesn't really go around the whole way, which is good, though. Maybe there yeah, are no waves. We don't waves. want the wave. We yeah. don't want the wave, yeah. Maybe. I want, that might be the best place to watch it. But Yeah. You know, I, I actually read a friend sent me a, a blog post from a baseball blogger whose name I won't mention because I don't necessarily want people to go to that uh, particular area. But this guy said, hey, guess what? Uh, so-and-so got hurt in a meaningless game from yeah. a meaningless series. I can't and I was like, that. No. No, it's just, isn't it as meaningful as you make it? The more you want it, the more meaningful it is. I got to assume it's either a Mets fan or an Astros fan at this point. You know, either <laughs> it's either Sugar or it's Altuve. And I guarantee you, neither of them would tell you it's meaningless nor have any regrets. So Completely agree. Completely agree. I mean, yeah, I've, I've seen those and I've just ignored them because, well, I'm, I'll say a name. In fact, this might even have been the name you were trying not to say, but I know Keith Olbermann said that in a in a social media post. And, yeah, he did say that. Oh, I just rolled my eyes, and he he took it on the chin too. I, I didn't see a single comment that <laughs> agreed with him. But uh, speaking of some more WBC content, <laughs> apparently the Lars Newt Bar Pepper Grinder move is unwelcome in Japanese high school baseball. Oh, really? Yeah. So I do want to talk about the Koshien Spring Tournament, which is going on right now in a minute. But uh, a player for one of the high schools uh, got a double, popped up, looked into his dugout, did the uh, did the old pepper grinder, and the umpire immediately told him to stop. <laughs> so high school baseball regulations tend to really try to curb these expressions of emotion such as making a clinched fist after scoring is one thing I saw. So this is a quote from uh, from a member of the board of the high school no fun committee apparently. He said, quote, we have always asked high school baseball to abstain from unnecessary performances and gestures. We understand the players' feelings of wanting to have fun, but the federation believes that fun should come from the game, end quote. <laughs> So if you're celebrating a double, that's not coming from the game. Nope. This is okay. uh, and this I didn't is, know that. This is straight from Joe Wet Blanket here in terms of you can't have that. So let the kids play. Not a thing in Japanese high school baseball, apparently. That's yeah, pretty sad. That being said, I have been watching the spring uh, Koshien tournament this year. Uh, there are a couple of links I found online, live 
don't understand what they're saying, but I don't care. I'm just watching. Oh, it's, it's so cool. <laughs> First of all, no need for a pitch clock at all. I think there's a pitch like every seven seconds. It is bang, bang, bang. These kids, they look like professionals out there too. Everything they do looks like a professional baseball player. And I am here for it. I love it. I imagine the fundamentals are, are pretty uh, well preached yep. at that level. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's no pepper grinding. I will say that. So, okay. uh, But school bands play the entire time. And it's kind of... it. it just from watching a couple of days of this, it appears like each batter appears to have a song that the band plays for the entirety of their at-bat. Wow. So remember, we talked about the the Royal Rooters in the early 1900s for the Red Sox that would pick a song and they would play it kind of like a walk-up for each batter. Well, here, the bands play it their entire at-bat. One guy, and I'm assuming the players are not picking these because uh, some of these songs, uh, one was the theme to the Mickey Mouse Club, which (laughs) over a four minute at bat was really annoying. I'm not going to lie. There were a lot of foul balls and I was like, please put it in play. We now know who the leader is. Okay. (laughs) Who's the leader? Okay. We know it's Mickey. Let's move on. Then uh, another, another kids was the William Tell Overture, which is not a long song uh, or overture. I think that I think overtures tend not to be long, right? Uh, True. Yes. His at bat was. Um, <laughs> it gets a little annoying after a while, but it's still really cool. And it's like the whole school turns out, and they're all doing these cheers, and it's just it's a really cool thing. Uh, if you can st- just. Look on uh, look on Reddit in the NPB subreddit, and I'm sure you will find these links. I'm not going to link them because I'm not sure who <laughs> I'm not sure exactly who's posting them or or so forth. So I don't want to send people somewhere where you know they might not want to go. But uh, it's really interesting. It'd be a real fun. It might be a bucket list kind of thing to kind of see in person. Yeah, very cool. Be on the lookout for it if you if you want. Uh, Mark, last week I said it was going to probably be our last trivia of the of the season, of the off-season, and I was right. We've yep. got some debuts this week, but first we've got, to, uh, we've got to address the final trivia question that I asked last week, which was, uh, I, I found this phrase I had not heard before, it is a reverse triple-double for baseball in which a player commits two errors, strikes out twice, and grounds into two double plays in a single game. And uh, my question was, uh, who the heck is the only player that's done that? Did you uh, did you come up with anything? Well, I didn't come up with a professional player, but on the softball team I used to play on, his name was Marty. Oh, I thought you were going to say Mark. And no, no, I was bad, but not as bad as Marty. Poor Marty. <laughs> anyway, no, I don't have an answer. Well, neither did anybody else. I finally no. did it on the final trivia question. You know, we got a couple of responses saying, um, no idea. Which yeah. I'm actually pretty proud of myself. I uh, I finally did it. Uh, like I said, I gave some clues. We've talked about this guy before. Specifically, Tommy Lasorda had some words about this guy before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? It is none other than Dirty Kurt Bavakwa. <laughs> One of the funnest names to say in all of sports, Bavakwa. July 16th, 1978, Rangers at the Orioles, Bavakwa 0 for 5, two strikeouts, two double plays grounded into, and two errors. Oof. Rough game. 
Wow. Uh, this was when he was playing for the Rangers. You know, he, he didn't exactly kill them. Uh, this game went 12 innings, and the Orioles walked it off 2-1. to one. Wow. Let's see. Did it tell me how many he left on base? It doesn't. So I don't know if maybe he struck out with the bases loaded twice, but it didn't. I mean, all runs were earned in this game, so he didn't cause this loss completely on his own. But uh, some great names in here for that Rangers team. Also, Bobby Bonds was on there. John Lowenstein was playing. Al Oliver, the human rain delay mark. Mike Hargrove was there. Uh, Bert Campanaris was there. Oh, I wish he would have been at fantasy camp. I would have loved to have talked to him about these kind of things. But uh, Eddie Murray uh, in that game for the Orioles, along with Ken Singleton, Doug DeSensei, just some great names here. And getting the win, none other than uh, former episode topic Don Stanhouse. Very nice. Stan the man, what was it? Stan the man uh, awkward or I, I forget what uh, what his nickname, one of his nicknames was. Stan the man unusual. That's what it was. There you go. But uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, 11,000 people saw it. It took three hours and 20 minutes to play. Wow. I tell you what, baseball is amazing in that you could take a terrible performance like that and still have a competitive game and and just kind of hide that performance among all the rest of the at-bats and hits and so on. And, and, you know, terrible game, but they were still in it. I love that. One guy can't, can't really change. Well, like one guy can't change the entire game, but uh, a bad performance you can still overcome. Yeah. I, I was shocked to see that went 12 innings and it was two to one when you yeah, have amazing. I just assumed everybody was having a bad day, but no, looks like it was, uh, it wasn't too bad. All right, so Mark, I mentioned debuts. Now, I love debuts. I like to talk about debuts uh, of when the show is going to actually be debuting, and we've got a couple today, so I'm very excited about this. We have a notable debut and a notable final game that happened on uh, March 21st when this show is debuting. They both happened in the same game, and guess what, Mark? I was at this game. No way. Yes, don't have to go back too far. 2019, Yusei Kikuchi made his major league debut in the Tokyo Dome in the same game that Ichiro made his final appearance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it was the A's and the Mariners playing a two-game opening series in Japan. And uh, that was one that I went to. And, you know, I was thinking about the other day. I kind of feel bad because the A's got swept in this series. They lost both games. And that second game when Ichiro came out in the middle of the game and, you know, everyone knew that that was the end. As soon as that game was over, I was so upset at the A's for being swept that we just got up and left. Nobody else <laughs> left their seats. And we just like bolted. I, like, I want to get out of here. <laughs> I was kind of feeling bad about that. Uh, when I was thinking about this, but I kind of want to talk more about Ichiro than Kikuchi because Kikuchi has been, I would say, a minor disappointment mm-hmm. with his big league debut. I mean, he's a good pitcher, but certainly hasn't been anything spectacular. But Ichiro, 3,000 plus hits in Major League Baseball as a 28 year old rookie. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. I did have a bonus trivia question for our people that already missed trivia. Uh, Did you know that when Ichiro entered the 3000 hit club on August 7th, 2016, he was the second member who reached that plateau with a triple? Who was the first? Well, and I guess the only other one. I'm not going to make everybody wait till next week. I'm just going to tell you right now. It was Paul Molitor. 
Well, that was going to be my guess. That was, sure it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could have been Robin Young. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, teammates for a long time, but (laughs) good old Robin Yunt. All right. Well, uh, I look forward to having a kind of a a wider pool of debuts next week, but still it was exciting to get back to debuts. All right, Mark, uh, let's let the grand screw come out here. They've uh, spray painted uh, the outline of the opening, you know, week and opening series things. They haven't filled them in yet because it's not the regular season yet, but they're getting ready to on the in the foul territory here. So we'll let them uh, chalk the, the field and water it down and let's get ready and jump into uh, this week's main topic. All right, Mark, uh, I wanted to talk about catchers this week. Now, why I wanted to talk about catchers is because watching the WBC and looking around Major League Baseball dugouts, the number of managers who are former catchers is astronomically high. It is. All the way back to Connie Mack, good old Cornelius. Catchers have often turned into managers after their playing days. But I wanted to talk mainly about catchers' equipment more than catchers themselves. And there's a great Sabre article about the history of catchers' equipment that included this poem from, it just says, from the 1880s by uh, poet Harry Ellard. And uh, this is how it goes. We used no mattresses on our hands, no cage upon our face. We stood right up and caught the ball with courage and with grace. This is from the 1880s. He's, they're already lamenting that they've. (laughs) (laughs) The game has changed. We must be upset. That they're protecting themselves. Exactly. And something has changed and they're outraged about it. (laughs) The the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Exactly. Well, we've referenced it before. The catcher's gear is often called the tools of ignorance. This phrase was coined by Harold Muddy Rule, who was a catcher and a lawyer who caught for greats like Walter Johnson with the Washington Nationals in the 1920s, he had a pretty good career as a catcher. Probably, you know, has some of these innovations to thank, despite coining the phrase tools of ignorance. But before we can talk about all the equipment, we need to talk about really why it's needed. Obviously, if you're introduced to the game today, you can see why all of the safety equipment is needed. But in the early days of the game, pitching was meant to be simply a way to initiate the action, not try to get a batter out by throwing the ball past them. The ball was tossed underhand. The batter could even request a location. So because of that, catchers would set at 15 to 20 feet behind the batter and wore no equipment, not even a mitt. So why did catchers decide to get all up close and personal like we see today? Well, in 1858, called strikes became a thing. But like today, a strikeout could only be completed by catching the pitch before it hit the ground. Then pitching started to evolve, and eventually pitchers were able to throw overhand, leading to another rule change, which stated that the catcher must be within 10 feet of home plate. (laughs) So they continue to inch closer. With pitches being thrown overhand and faster and needing to be closer to the plate, catchers weren't stupid, okay? Uh, By the 1870s, they started to use fingerless gloves, but most were slow to adopt to this because they were hearing it from outfielders who were like 300 to 400 feet away and fans who were sitting comfortably behind a fence who were questioning their masculinity for having to wear (laughs) a fingerless glove. I'm not sure calling catcher's gear the tool of ignorance is right. It sounds to me like they're actually the smarter ones in this instance. 
Interesting note, uh, these fingerless gloves were not even actually used to catch the ball. Catchers at this point would knock down the pitch with their chest and then pick it up with their fingerless (laughs) glove and throw it back. The point of the fingerless glove at that point, I'm still not sure of, but... What in the world? It bounced? Okay. Yeah. Hey, you still do a lot of that, uh, but it's only on wild pitches, so you yeah. might as well. So this leads to my next question is, if catchers are actually smart, why wasn't the chest protector the first thing invented? If they're <laughs> knocking down these things with their chest and then picking it up with their hand, I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. Tools of Ignorance is right. Uh, I found an entire phone book's worth of names of people who are thought to have, quote, invented the catcher's mitt. Uh, it evolved from the fingerless glove that uh, I talked about early to a more pillowy thing that was literally just a round cushion with a hard back to which a fingerless glove was then stitched on the back of it. So it, you couldn't even move it. It was like if you stitched a fingerless glove to a piece of wood and then like stapled a pillow on front of it. That's what it was like. <laughs> that sounds like fun. I mean, come on. Yeah. So the the catchers would hold this stiff I'm saying mitt with air quotes, uh, out in front of themselves with both hands behind it. Then hopefully the ball would hit it, and then they would reach around with their bare hand, catching the ball after it hit it before it dropped onto the ground. I mean, it's kind of a dance, you know, especially if you're trying to catch a third strike that you very easily drop that. Well, there was little innovation in catcher's mitts until the 1950s, believe it or not, when a catcher called Gus Niojos cut up his catcher's glove so that he could squeeze the two sides of it together like a fielder's glove. Until the 1950s, guys were still having to catch it with two hands. Thus, the hinged catcher's mitt was introduced into the world, and it would instantly become popular with players like Johnny Bench and Randy Huntley using them, allowing catchers to only use one hand to catch. So you could squeeze it and not have to quickly put that other hand around and and grab the ball. Point of emphasis that I often bring up and why people often avoid me at parties and just if they see me in general, only two players on a baseball team wear mitts, catchers and first basemen. Everyone else has a glove because the fingers are, you know, individually um, Mm -hmm. encased in leather. I guess they all have they have a separate, you know, hole for each finger. Yeah, it's very literal. Yeah. You get a mitt and you got a glove. Yeah. I don't know, is that the best way to describe them encased in, in leather? But yes, I'm that guy that if you couldn't already tell by four years worth of this podcast, that will literally correct somebody if they say the shortstop is wearing a mitt. And I'll hear myself saying this. I'll just see the expression on people's faces around me as I'm saying this, but I won't stop telling them the difference so that they'll think I'm smart and interesting. <laughs> That's right. You know what? Telling stuff like that uh, to people who maybe aren't even familiar with baseball makes it very interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure they would say it makes it interesting. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> ah, so catchers, much like Mark and I, make their money from their good looks. Okay? Uh-huh. So protection of the face became more important as the game and the catcher's position evolved. Before any sort of mask was introduced, mouthpieces, like a boxer would wear, were the only safety equipment before the fingerless gloves. I have to assume that this really cut down on a lot of the chatter between the catcher and the batter when these things were used. Or it was just a lot of mumbling and the batter just shaking their head. (laughs) Yeah, kind of like when the the dentist asks you a question when they've got their hand in your mouth, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, 
Yeah, I think that's called muttering. I think that's called annoying. I mean, yeah. come on now. Uh, mm-hmm. Eventually, catchers decided that they were tired of being the ugliest guy on each team, so they started to wear protective masks. Now, this is 1877. They started wearing protection on their face. Now, what hockey is my second favorite sport. I love hockey, but I don't get hockey. I mean, I get hockey. I understand hockey. A sport, though, where something equally as hard has the chance of coming in contact with your face at a high rate of speed. Goalie masks in the NHL were not a thing until 1959. That's 80 years that there was some sort of facial protection. But hockey goalies were like, we're good, eh? (laughs) Yeah. No, thanks. (laughs) And then, you know, in a strange turn of events, some catchers now wear hockey goalie style masks. So it's kind of weird like that. But the first catcher's masks were actually just fencing masks. Now, I don't know what fencing masks looked like back then, but today they're pretty badass looking. Like, Mm -hmm. think of some dude sitting behind home plate wearing those masks from Squid Game. I'd be be a little bit freaked out, but I would also think that's pretty cool. But uh, these didn't provide a very good line of sight for the catchers because they don't, you know, they need to see all around them. So a Harvard student called Fred Thayer came up with the first version of something that we would think of today as a catcher's mask. Eventually, Alfred Spaulding eventually got involved as he did with all baseball equipment and improved upon it. I found this very disturbing uh, from the Spaulding uh, equipment catalog that you could order from. Those first masks were padded and covered with, quote, imported dog skin. Oh, God. That's frightening. Yeah. Now, as far as the catcher's masks go, things haven't really evolved that much. If you look at the early masks, they still look similar to those worn today. Obviously, much different material. The craftsmanship is is, is much, much better. And no imported dog skin, hopefully. But (laughs) otherwise similar. I'm still, I had, a, I had a nightmare about that after I read about that. That's, yeah, that. that's frightening. That's not cool. Now, chest protectors, though, are a completely different story. Chest protectors, uh, the early ones were just called breast protectors. Uh, they were made of sheepskin, and they were worn under their uniforms, of course, to avoid razzing by teammates, opponents, and fans. Now, remember when we talked about players wearing numbers on their uniforms for the first time and they hated it because fans could tell them apart and individually yell and like razz them? Yes. Well, we'll get more of the same when we get to leg protectors too, but these guys were all too manly to wear protection, but they were also so fragile that they didn't want fans to know who they were so they, you know, wouldn't get yelled at. Kind of right. the original snowflakes, I guess, at that point. <laughs> uh, one origin story of chest protectors was that the wife of Detroit Wolverines catcher Charles Bennett devised the first chest pad to protect her husband in 1883. Other early designs included a canvas-covered rubber bladder that was pumped full of air. So it's like putting a... Wow. Those mattresses that you know, you sit in in the pool, putting one of those and strapping it on in front of you. <laughs> there were, however, some even more out there ideas on how to protect the catcher. One included a box that would be worn over the catcher's chest and it stuck out like two feet. It was filled with padding and they had these screen doors on hinges on the front. <laughs> The thought here being that the catcher would essentially catch the ball with his chest. 
And there was a baseball-sized hole at the bottom of the box, so the catcher could, like, roll roll it around, and then the ball would drop out of the bottom, and he could catch it. Oh, my Lord. I'm thinking, like, well, first of all, this reminds me, remember those games as a youth? Uh, they were, like, little squares, and you had a little, like, BB, and you would roll it around, and there'd be holes as you try to navigate the maze, and you try to avoid the holes. Oh, I know what you're talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could just see the catchers trying to do that to get the ball <laughs> to go through this hole <laughs> so they could throw it. <laughs> so, anyway, first of all, I'm thinking base stealers would have loved this thing, right? Because the catcher oh, yeah. would have to wait for the ball to drop. Plus, there's no way that a catcher could throw with this contraption attached to themselves. No, it doesn't sound like it. My thought was this would have made a great strike zone. If the catcher could sit very still, they could just sit there. And if the ball lands in the box, it's a strike. Kind of like when you would set up a lawn chair behind home plate when playing wiffle ball. And if it hits the if it hits the, the chair, it's a strike. Okay. okay, yeah. This contraption was patented and there is a drawing of it. And it's being worn by a person who looks very, very worried (laughs) somebody's actually going to throw a ball at them while wearing this thing. Interesting uh, to note that today's version of the chest protector weighs less than half of what those early ones that were worn all the way through the 40s. Plus, Hmm. obviously, they they afford much more protection. They're much more easy, uh, you know, much more easily maneuvered within just uh, some some great advancements obviously in in all of the safety but especially the chest protectors now shin guards as i alluded to before catchers were wearing protective gear albeit not very effective but they were doing so on the down low wearing it under their jerseys so nobody could see it and hurt their feelings so before shin guards became an accepted thing catchers would wrap their lower legs with leather or newspaper and then put their the pants on over those Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to reference Seinfeld again here. Remember when George buys that fancy new suit, but when he walks around it makes a noise? Yes. Wouldn't walking around with newspaper wrapped around your legs do kind of the same thing? One would think, yeah. I'm thinking you're giving yourself away when you when you walk up to home plate with the swishing noise. Uh, Similar to hockey goalies being late adapters for head protection, catchers were equally slow to come around with something that I am sure a lot of them were already familiar with, which is cricket leg pads. Cricket being such a a close relative to baseball, and we're talking about the early 1900s here, so I'm guessing a lot of these guys are very familiar with cricket, and maybe even were still playing it and wore these leg guards. These leg pads that were worn while playing cricket consisted of light cane rods covered in padded fabric to cover the shins, and it also had padding that protected the knees. Better than newspaper or nothing, but still not a lot of protection. But this type of protection was used for almost 60 years. By the 1960s, a light but tough molded plastic began to replace the fiber. Announcer and former catcher Tim McCarver survived two collisions in one game with uh, then Mets Tommy Agee that left two of Agee's spikes embedded in his cards. Wow. <laughs> one for each slide. So first of all, it's just weird that how none of this stuff really became effective until the 1960s, right? That's when... The, yeah. the shin guards, that's when the, uh, the the catcher's glove really started to become more of what we think of today. But, I mean, <laughs> you block the plate 
And then you walk back into the dugout and you've got one of the guy's spikes embedded in your shin guard. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that's some battle. That's that's right. It's a battle star. Yeah, definitely. Another thing to think about when we talk about all this equipment is I've been focusing on how this equipment helped catchers receive pitches. Well, as was highlighted with that Tommy AG leaving a couple of spikes in, in the shin guards, these improvements helped in other aspects as well. Blocking the plate as well as having the ability to field their position, they needed to be able to move around and make throws and block pitches, etc. like I just said. So, I mean, this, this equipment has really helped elevate the catcher's position into, you know, more of just somebody back there receiving it. They can kind of do everything that everybody else does. Let's also not forget about protective cups. Now, I didn't actually do any reading on cups for this, but I got to assume that uh, when it came to using them, catchers were uh, were the first adopters because you could wear it under your jersey so nobody knows they're there and they're protecting the family jewels. So I'm just yeah. make an assumption there. Yeah, cups uh, are magic and, and no one wants to play without them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that's the thing. I think everybody wants to play without them because they're not comfortable. But yeah. I think everybody knows, you know, if you're playing in certain spots, you got to wear it. That's it. Yeah. That's uh, I just I was I was watching all the catchers managing. And uh, then I just happened to be poking around saw that Saper article and uh, found some really interesting stuff about a lot of these uh, catchers equipment. So. All right. With that being said, Mark, are you ready? Uh, I think we've got this is going to be our penultimate um, exhibition game when it comes to Wax Packs Hero. So you are you ready for that? We took extra BP over here. Oh, well, that's good. That's good. Well, I was, you know, working and getting this show ready. I'm glad you could brush up and go for your back to back to back to back championship. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Has it really been that many? Yeah. Well, wow. it's, well, if you win again, but uh, regardless, it's time for Wax Packs Hero. Hit the music. Wax Pack Hero! All right, Mark, uh, as we said, this is just uh, going to be an exhibition match until the regular season starts. We're working in some of the new rules, so we're going to continue to see how that goes. If you are new here, uh, this is how we play Wax Packs Heroes. We've got a couple of uh, packs of baseball cards. Uh, this case, Mark, we're going old school. Uh, not real old school, but we're going 91 score. And I say old school because I bought a box of these when we first started doing this. And we're not even halfway through them, so I'm going to pull them out. We're going to use those uh, for this exhibition match. We're going to pull these out. We're each going to open a pack. We are going to take the baseball reference war of the player on the card uh, from 1991 in this case. We'll add those up. Got a couple of things that can add or subtract points from that. Anything on the player's face. That means glasses, mustache, eye black, earring, uh, Brady Anderson sideburns. Extra tenth of a point for each of them. If they're wearing real stirrups where we can see sanitary socks, that's an extra tenth as well. Two and ones, though, are a minus a tenth of a point because we don't like those. Uh, if the player won any award in that year, this case 1991, that means Rookie of the Year, Cy Young MVP, All-Star, or won a gold glove, that's half a point of war. If there's a Hall of Famer on the card, whether they're the focus or not, that is a extra entire point of war because they're in the Hall of Fame. If Ricky Henderson or Nolan Ryan show up in either pack, I get immediate five points for Ricky and Mark, you get five for Nolan. We're each going to pick a team. And if that team pulls, uh, 
is pulled in either deck, just like Ricky or Nolan, will get a half a point. Couple of the new rules. If the player is mentioned in the Mitchell report, that is a minus half a point of war. If the player can easily be found out to have starred in any sort of acting role, meaning popular media, not like uh, Baseball Tonight or a MLB documentary. That is a half a point of war, unless it is Sabrina the Teenage Witch or a Seinfeld episode in which you will get a whole point because, of course, why not? So, Mark, uh, what team are you going to go with today? I think I'm going to go with the old St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, I'm going to go with Team Japan. <laughs> oh, okay, wait. I'm I all just, for that. Yeah, I probably can't do that. All right, you're going Cardinals. Well, I referenced it last week. I am uh, playing uh, I'm playing in a men's wood bat hardball league, and I'm a Cub, so I'm going to go with the Cubs as your rival. Right on. So let's see here. Let's. Uh, I got two packs here, Mark, one in my left hand, one in my right hand. I'm not going to let you choose. I'm going to choose because uh, I'm determined not to let you win. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to have you take the one in my right hand, and I'm going to have you go first. How do you like that? Okay, I'm all ready. I'm set. We're all stretched out and ready to go. All right, Mark. So uh, I'm going to have you go first and uh, let's get started here. You're going to get started with uh, one of my favorite athletics of the time. It is Mike Bordick. Oh, man. You're talking to one of the founding members of the Mike Bordick fan club here. Uh, Do you still have your membership card? Oh, we just had shirts, and yes, I still have it. Oh, okay, good. Well, Mike Bordick, let's see, 14 years in the big leagues. In 1991, it's his second year in the majors. 90 games, 238 average, 289 on base, no home runs, 21 RBI, and an OPS of 60. No rookie of the year votes. The next year, his first his first season where he played 150-plus, came in 21st in the MVP voting. Wow. Just missed that. But let's see. In 1991, that equates to a war of 0.6. Um, and there is uh, absolutely nothing on this card. He is only wearing one batting glove, but we removed that. <laughs> that rules. So that's not going to help you. Yeah. So uh, that'll be at least uh, starting out in the positive there for Mike Bordick. Mike Bordick uh, defensively was unbelievable at any position. Yeah, he was a good defensive guy. Uh, let's see. You could pretty much stick him anywhere in the infield. I know he's he did some work. I think he's still doing some work for the Orioles on TV. I think so, yeah. Well, and that does not count as uh, as acting. No, no. <laughs> that looks like he was let go from Masson two years ago. So, not even that. But uh, I've got fond memories of Mike Bordick. That's that's a good card. All right. Yeah. Next, uh, I feel like we pull this card an awful lot. I know he just passed away recently. Uh, We've covered uh, some of his antics on a uh, Tales from the Dugout. Here, pitcher for the Reds, Tom Browning. Yes, we've discussed Mr. Browning a number of times. Let's see. Tom Browning uh, just passed away uh, in December of last year, unfortunately, at the age of 62. Tom Browning played for 12 years in the big leagues. Of course, he won a World Series. We're not going to talk about that. Uh, 1991, good news for you, all-star year. His only all-star year, he went 14-14 and 14 with a 4.18 ERA, 36 games uh, he started, one complete game, led the league in earned runs allowed and home runs allowed. Uh, that's good for a 92 ERA plus and a war of .8. He is an all-star that year, so that'll bump you up to a point, uh, I'm sorry, 1.2. It looks like he's got some real stirrups on, so that'll be 1.3. I'm sorry, 1.4. Okay. Uh, yeah, we've uh, since he passed away, we dropped our lawsuit. He did co-author a book called Tom Browning's Tales from the Reds Dugout. Uh, we're going to let yes. that go. Still had to pay our lawyer, though. 
Yeah, well, we, we're still in court for uh, court costs. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. All right, uh, you're at two even. Your next card is uh, first baseman here for the Red. Um, here for the Pirates, it's Gary Reedus. Not Norman Reedus. No. Very different. Let's see. Gary Reedus. Uh, let's see. He played for 13 years in the big leagues. Five with the Bucks, four with the Reds, two with the Rangers and White Sox, and one with the Phillies. 1991 with the Bucks, 98 games. He hit 246, 324 on base, seven home runs, 24 RBI, 17 stolen bases. Uh, let's see, didn't strike out a whole lot. Only 39 strikeouts and 288 plate appearances, and he walked 28 times. That is a 102 OPS plus, and that is only good for a .3 war. I think that would be higher. Hmm. But nothing else on this card is going to help you out. All right, uh, your pack is pretty boring here. Nobody's got a whole lot going on uh, in the in the exciting off-the-field stuff here. Um, hmm. Wow, this card is nice. This is Daryl Ackerfeld from the Phillies. Now, he's throwing a knuckleball here in this picture, and I don't remember him being a knuckleball pitcher. Hmm. I don't either. Weird. Maybe we just don't know any better. Maybe it's a knuckle curve, but, I mean, he's got those two knuckles pretty prominently up there. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Let's see. It looks like, unfortunately, Daryl passed away in 2012. He's only 50 years old. (laughs) For his career, five years in the big leagues, came up with the A's, uh, spent one season in Cleveland, one season in Texas, and his two final in, in Philadelphia. 1991 was his final year. Two and one with a 5.26 ERA and a 70 ERA plus, and that is a minus 0.4 war. He does also have the dreaded two and ones here. Oh, man. So that's going to be a minus 0.5. Uh, no facial hair is going to help you out here. Even the knuckleball is not going to help you out. Man. Let's see. Oh, the Mariners, first round draft pick, seventh overall in the 83 draft. Hmm. I don't recall that. Well, he never, he never, a while ago. Yeah, never played for the Mariners. They traded him to the A's. He seems like he would have fit right in with the Mariners around then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, again, just not a whole lot to talk about with some of these guys. Next, we have got uh, second baseman for the Red Sox. It is Marty Barrett. Uh, Marty Grin and Barrett. I like Marty Grin and Barrett. I think you've said that before, and I think I probably said, oh, it's a good one. Probably. Marty yeah. Barrett, 10 years in the big leagues, nine with the Red Sox, who he came up with, and then his final year, only 12 games with the Padres. That final year was 1991, where in those 12 games, only 16 at-bats. He hit 188, did have a home run with three ribs, and an 83 OPS plus, and that is a war of minus .1. He does have some very sexy stirrups on here, though. So uh, that will end up being a uh, just a wipe, zero. This, this card is really dark. It's at Fenway, and they're playing, it looks like it, I want to say the Tigers, because the guy's got orange shoes on, but he's got a red, white, and blue stripe down the, the, the pants. So that's obviously not the Tigers. Maybe the Twins at that point? No, they were wearing gray pinstripes. I don't know. Oh, the Rangers. I'll bet you that's who it is. It's probably the Rangers. But man, it must be cloudy because it is a really dark picture. And I probably went into way too much uh, depth explaining this card. What was that? I was taking Yeah, you you drifted off there. Uh, The Red Sox (laughs) drafted him in the first round twice before they finally enticed him to uh, to sign. Oh, big fans. All right, so you're at two point... 2.1 2.1 with only four cards left. You really need to, well, true. I'll, I'll be at 1.1 at this point. Uh, next, you've got another Red Sox here. Pitcher Rob Murphy. Middle reliever? I'm going to assume so. 
it says relief pitcher on his card. So definitely a, a reliever. Let's see, pitched in 597 games in his 11-year career, zero starts. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, in those 11 years, four with the Reds, two with the Cards, two with the Red Sox, and then one year for a bunch of teams, including your Seattle Mariners in 1991, where in 57 mm-hmm. games, wow, pretty good year. He went 0-1-1, but a 3.0 ERA, four saves, 48 innings, 34 strikeouts, a 138 ERA+. Plus. And that's good for a 1.3 war. Uh, he is wearing the two and one. Hey, still, I'll take that. So that'll only be a 1.2, oh. but still, I mean, this had to have been taken in the same game because uh, they're at Boston and it is very dark again. Either that or just the, the camera person just didn't know how to work their camera very well. Set that exposure setting. Uh, let's see another first round draft pick. This one by the Reds third overall in 1981. Traded by Cincinnati with the Asaskin. I know that's not a thing, but I'm going to make it a thing. Nick Asaski to the Red Sox for a player to be named later. Todd Benzinger, the Zinger, and Jeff Sellers. And then he was traded to the Mariners for Mark Gardner. So hmm. Interesting. Big, big names there. <laughs> that's right. Flying around left and right. Like they're just pieces of a puzzle. Man. All right. So you're... 3.3 next. Oh, this one, this one might help. Here he is with the Royals. It's Flash, Tom Gordon. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, closers don't always get the respect with war that I always think they should. Yeah, now, well, I'm pretty sure Flash was a starter at one point, and uh, yeah, he was at this point. Early okay. in his career with Kansas City, he was a starter. Overall, 21 years he was in the big leagues. That's a long-ass career. 1988 through 2009. Eight with the Royals, four with the Red Sox, and then a whole bunch of other teams. In 1991, he went 9-14 with a 3.87 ERA. That is in 45 games, 14 starts, and then some relief appearances. So not just a dedicated starter at that point. 158 innings, 167 strikeouts, and a 107 ERA+. plus. That's pretty good. That will equate to a 2.1 war, plus he's got real stirrups. Very nice. Thank you, Tom Gordon. A little bit of respectability here. Yeah, and of course, Tom Gordon, pop culture-wise, uh, was it a book or was he just a uh, book title or was he just mentioned in a Stephen King novel? No, it was a book title. Oh, here we go. Stephen King, of course, a very big baseball fan. He's got a, a horror novel coming out called uh, Three Strike Noise. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, some would say that Two Strike Noise is uh, scary enough. <laughs> yes. Uh, when he retired, the only pitcher in Major League Baseball history to have 100 wins, over 100 saves, and over 100 holds. Wow, really? Uh, of course, D, his son, uh, I think, I'm not sure if he's still p- kicking around somewhere, but D. Gordon Strange has had a, a good, good career. Um, and uh, Anthony Gordon and his cousin Clyde Porkchop Poe played professional <laughs> baseball. Oh, I remember Porkchop. Yeah, let's see. Uh, They all played in the minor leagues and one year in the Mexican League. And uh, Gordon, here it is. Gordon is mentioned by name in the title and frequently referred to in the Stephen King novel, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. There you go. All right, next, uh, let's see. You've got two cards left here at 5.5. Here with the Blue Jays, and this would help you because this guy's wearing two flaps on his batting helmet. Another rule that we just lost because it (laughs) never happened. Junior Felix. Ah, yes, I remember him being a uh, an up and coming ball player, and I 
Not sure he ever got up and came in for a whole lot. No. And not to be confused with Senior Felix. No, no. Very different people. No. Junior, six years in the big leagues, two with the Angels, two with the Jays, one with the Tigers, one with the Fish. 1991 with the Angels, 66 games, 283 average, 321 on base, two home runs, 26 RBI, and a 92 OPS plus. That's good for a .1 war. He does have real stirrups on, so that'll be .2, but that'll be it. Oh, this is fun. September 2nd, 1990, caught the final out when Dave Steve finally got a no-hitter. <laughs> Dave Steve, the man who came close 100 million times. And then he immediately caught it and threw it up in the stands in celebration. <laughs> yes, not. Uh, also, that year, hit an inside-the-park Grand Slam in Boston. And I know exactly, and I mean, it might be his that I remember, but I remember seeing an inside-the-park Grand Slam at Fenway. It was down right field line. It got into that corner by the pesky pole, and he overran. It took a bad angle, and it just rolled like a like a pinball machine, you know, when it gets in the corners and it just rolled all the way into uh, center field. Nice. All right, you're at 5.7 and your last card is another great name to say. Pitcher for the Cardinals, Tom Needenfewer. <laughs> we've we've talked about the nickname Home Run Needenfewer and how it's not very polite. No, yes. Well, yes and no. We have talked about it and you're right. It's not very polite. <laughs> Uh, out of Redmond, Washington, and Redmond High School, and a uh, at least one time, he was enrolled at Washington State. Wow! There you go, Thomas Edward Needenfewer. Ten years in the big leagues, seven with the Dodgers, two with the O's, one with St. Louis, and one with your Seattle Mariners. Now, the bad news for you is 1990 was his final year in the big leagues. The good news for you is that he has got a full beard and mustache. The other bad news for you is that he has got two-in-one stirrups. So it it all, well, let's see. Well, he's a cardinal here. So the good news for you is that that's half a point of war because that's your team. So congrats. something, you know. Right on. Interesting. uh, Do I get any points for Tom Needham here being married to an actress? Uh, I will determine once uh, you tell me who. Uh, Tom uh, is married to Judy Landers. You know, Mama's family, and then like every mo- every TV show in the entire seventies, Happy Days. Oh, bit. I I didn't. The name is not familiar, but pulling up her picture here, yep, she is. You know where she is. Literally in every. You are correct in any kind. She's never the lead. No, always a supporting. Yes. Match game, match game. Oh yeah, well, that was a match game. Yeah. Well, okay. The match game. I'm gonna go ahead. And, I'm gonna give you two tenths of a point. Yeah, right on. It's a special case. This is, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll uh, pop culture is what we're all about here. So uh, I'm going to give you that. Plus, it's an exhibition game. We'll see. We'll see how, how that plays out after my, I open my pack. But uh, there it is, 6.4 for you. And plus, in his bio here, it does mention Bobo Braden, the great Bobo Braden. Oh, there you go. Good news. You know, I actually, uh, when Tom was in the minors, um, it was, I believe it was after um, the, the home run incident. Um, I did see Judy in the crowd. I went up and I got an autograph. Really? Do you still have that? I do. Yeah. It's nowhere I can find it, but I think I know where it is. But she wrote, uh, love Judy Landers and drew a big heart, you know? So back then I was like, man, she really likes me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's see, I'm going to go ahead and open mine up. All right, so uh, I'm going to open up my pack here. Now, again, I got a red sock to start out with here. It's at Fenway, and it is just dark as heck. I'm I'm going to send Scora a scathing email asking why the photographer doesn't know how to use their own camera. 
but here it is, center fielder Ellis Burks. Uh, we have discussed how much we like Mr. Burks. Yeah. Just a solid a ball player, man. Guy we liked for the Red Sox and the Rockies. Uh, 18 years in the big leagues. Boston, Colorado. Also played for Cleveland, the Giants, and the White Sox. In 1991, 130 games, 251 average, 314 on base. 14 home runs, 56 RBI, 11 uh, caught stealing. I uh, went one column too far. Six stolen bases, 11 caught stealing. Yee. And a 98 OPS plus, and that will equal a war of 2.5. Very nice. I like that. Uh, he's got a beard and mustache, of course, but he's also wearing the two-in-ones. So that'll just be a 2.5 for me. Now, Ellis Burks was not on that uh, episode of Married with Kids. Married with Kids. Married with Children during the strike, was it? I don't believe so. All right. Well, we'll check that out. First round draft pick, 20th overall by the Red Sox in 1983. Oh, he he played uh, junior college ball and lost to a team led by Jay Buhner. Ooh. Nope. Don't see anything about being on Married with Children. All right. I'm not sure how much it's going to get me, depending on when this uh, actually falls in his career. But here for the Kansas City Royals, center fielder, Bo Jackson. <laughs> I don't think we've ever had Bo on, on Wax Facts Heroes. If I remember right, Bo, Bo never had like super stats. Uh, yeah, I mean, let's see, a 250 career average, uh, 309 career on base. Not that great. A 112 career OPS plus. In 1991, this was his uh, first year with the Royals. He only appeared in 23 games, hit 225, 333 on base, three home runs, 14 RBI, 107 OPS plus, and that is good for a .1 war. Now, pop culture. Of course, the Bo Knows campaign ad, I think we have to account for that. It was it was pretty huge. I think it might even I, I think you would get no argument that is bigger than Judy Sanders or Saunders or <laughs> You already forgot. That's how that's how huge it is. Uh, no, I, I'm with you. The, the Bono's campaign was was ginormous. Yeah. What do you say we go with half a point of war for that? That's fair. That's fair. I mean, that was there was a point where he was was everywhere. Oh man. That's a fact. Now, and if you drawn Deion Sanders, he would have had the Hall of Fame. Yeah, for I mean, football. I, I think we can just we'll go with half because he was uh, he's listed here as uh, also having starred in episodes of The Fresh Prince of Bel Air, Married with Children, and in the film The Chamber. Oh wow! So not those are not just uh, mentions. Those no, are he he was in. Those are solid. Uh, let's see, also completed his uh, Bachelor of Science degree in Family and Child Development at Auburn. Very nice, Bo. Yeah, very uh, smart guy. And obviously, as uninteresting as uh, most of your team was when we looked up the, uh, you know, kind of the, the other stuff, this has got just uh, a lot of stuff going on here. Oh, this is this is good. So there is, uh, there was a, a wrestling uh Federation called Chikara, which is no longer around. It was really entertaining. They had very in-depth uh, <clears throat> characters, and they had uh, a tag team, which I believe we have spoken about Dasher Hatfield before, who was like an old-timey baseball player. Well, he tagged with a uh, with a football guy, his gimmick, and his finishing move was called the Bo Jackson. <laughs> he is very also nice. referenced in a song by a tribe called Quest, as well as one by Foxy Brown. 
all over the place. Yeah. Apparently also appeared in an episode of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, as well as on an episode of Diagnosis Murder. <laughs> wow. Wow. Diagnosis Murder. You know, you think Bo Jackson, you think uh, crime drama. Yeah. Well, I've also forgotten an episode of Moesha and Fakin Defunk. <laughs> How'd you forget those? I don't know. I think he should get five entire points of <laughs> I think he's definitely got some pop culture. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Wipe it off the board. My next card, none other than the greatest baseball player of all time, the GOAT, the all-time leader in stolen bases, none other than Ricky Henderson. Oh, well, this game's over. I thought you were going to say Jim Eisenreich for a second. (laughs) This game is over. And I've never pulled a Ricky Henderson card before. You have, but I have not. Very, very nice, Jeff. Let's get it out of the way before the season starts. Oh, yeah. Shoot. I should have. But see, I I picked these packs. So moving forward, you are banned from picking them. (laughs) (laughs) So let's see. Uh, Of course, 90, he was the MVP. 91, he was an all-star. 134 games, 268 average, only a 400 on base. Nothing big. 18 home runs, 57 RBI, led the league with 58 stolen bases, a 135 OPS plus. I'm excited, Paul. If you can't tell, I'm just excited. I pulled a Ricky Henderson. A <laughs> 4.6 war. <clears throat> uh, he is wearing two and ones, unfortunately, but he does have a mustache and he does have eye black on and he's diving back into first base with his uh, Mizuno green batting gloves that I have a pair of sitting right here on my desk. So... It's a little uh, kismet there. Uh, So let's see. A 4.6, he was an all-star, so that's 5.1. He's a Hall of Famer, so that is uh, 6.1. He's Ricky Henderson, so that is 11.1, plus a tenth of a point for the eye black. So that'll be 11.2. Goodness gracious. Yeah, I I mean, I don't think we need to go too in-depth on on. Ricky Henderson. I mean, he's pretty much uh, made an appearance every single uh, episode of this podcast. So pretty much, yeah. Uh, I think we can uh, go there. Uh, it's terms of pop culture, though. You know, really uh, is not. I don't. I don't believe he's ever done any acting. I don't think so. I mean, it seemed like it never interested him. Uh, yeah, he's I'm, Ricky. You know. Yeah, I, uh, I. I really am struggling to think of anything that uh, that he's been besides acting cool. That's right. Acting cool. <laughs> All right. Well, again, doesn't matter. My next card. Now, you you heard me rip these cards. My next card is a center fielder for your Seattle Mariners. Oh, my gosh. So in this pack, I went Bo Jackson, Ricky Henderson, Ken Griffey Jr. Okay. No fair. All right. Well, I might repackage this one and <laughs> accidentally pull it out when we start the regular season here. Jeez, uh, let's see, 1991, all-star year, gold glove, uh, came in ninth in the MVP voting for the Mariners, 327 average, only a 399 on base, that's not quite as good as Ricky, uh, let's see, 22 home runs, 100 RBI, only 18 stolen bases, <laughs> he only struck out 82 times in 154 games. Wow, no that kidding. Walked 71 times. That is good for a 155 OPS plus, and that is good for a 7.5. Uh, he does have a mustache and eye black, but he is also wearing two and ones. So that'll only be 7.2. He is a Hall of Famer, so that is 8.1. And uh, I guess that's probably enough 
Oh, well, he was a, an all-star and a gold glove, so that'll be a 9.1. And, uh, of course, uh, he was on The Simpsons, uh, Homer at the Bat. Uh, or should, we count, should we count Homer at the Bat as a 1.02? Um, you know, that might be a good idea. Yeah, I mean, that's what these exhibition games are for, are fleshing these out. And I think, I, yes. I absolutely think, yeah, I think we need to do Simpsons in there as well. All right. So, uh, so that'll be, uh, that'll be a one point on that. So that will be a, tw- uh, what is that? That'll make that a 9.6. So, yeah. All right. Uh, I, I don't think we need to go through anything else there on Ken Griffey Jr. We'll just move on to the next one, which is who, me, worry? It's Al Newman. Al Newman following up the superstars was another one. Al Newman is a much beloved Minnesota twin, so. This is true. Let's see. Al Newman, eight years in the big leagues, five for the twins, two for Montreal, one with the Rangers, 91 in Minnesota, 118 games. His uh, positions played looks like a phone number. He played everywhere. 191 average, 260 on base, no home runs, 19 RBI, a 30 OPS plus. Yikes. And that is good for a minus .7 war. (laughs) <laughs> wow. Still ain't going to put a dent in it. No, he's, and you know, he's got real stirrups and eye black on, so it'll only be a minus 0.5 uh, there for Mr. Newman. But yeah, I, I mean, this is, this is a wipeout. They're, if this were the World Baseball Classic, this game would have been called already. Yeah, I, I wanted to call it here a little bit ago. <laughs> Let's see. Al Newman was drafted in the third round in 79, the third round in 80, the second round in the supplementary draft in 80, and then in 81 in the first round by the Expos. Wow. And uh, was traded at one point for uh, my guy, Carmelo Martinez. Hmm. All right. So, uh, wow, I've still <laughs> I've still got four cards left, and I am at an even 23 compared to your 6.4. So uh, let's uh, make haste here. Next, I got left-handed pitcher for the Expo, Steve Frey, or Fry. I'm not. I don't remember. F R E Y. I think it's Fry. I think but it is too. Who do I know? Uh, let's see. Steve, eight years in the big leagues, three with Montreal, two with a couple of teams, and one year in '95 with your Seattle Mariners. '91 with the Expos, 0 and 1 with a 4.99 ERA in 31 games, a 74 ERA plus. And that is good for a war of minus 1.1. Now, that's a, that's a traditional card for me right there. Yeah, yeah. Is a, is a minus 1.1. Uh, let's see. He does have a beard. And I can't. Oh, those are two and one. So that'll, that'll wipe, you, wipe them out there. So that'll be a, a minus 1.1 for me. And uh, surprisingly enough, no pop culture for Steve. No. All right, so we'll move on here. Next pitcher, rookie prospect for the Red Sox, Daryl Irvine. Mm, not familiar. I am not very familiar with Daryl either. Let's see, three years in the big leagues, 90 through 92, all through with all with the Red Sox. In 91, nine games, a no record, a 6.0 even ERA, 73 ERA plus. And uh, let's see, that is a war of minus 0.2. You're consistent here after the after the superstars come nothing but negatives. Yeah, but I got a Ricky Henderson in my pack. Uh, let's That's see. True. First round. Oh, here's another guy. 84, third round pick. Supplemental 84, second round pick. 85, first round pick. Wow. I guess these guys improving their their draft stock. All right, next we go to another rookie prospect. This one we've heard of. Catcher for the Brewers, Tim McIntosh. Named, of course, after the computer. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely named after uh, 
after the computer. Let's see, uh, five years in the big leagues for Tim, four with Milwaukee, and then split a season with the Expos and the Yankees in 91, only appeared in seven games, but he hit 364. Uh, had a home run. It was a solo shot, a 197 OPS plus, and a war of 0.1. Uh, nothing on this card is going to help me out, so I'll take my 0.1 and like it. Oh, wow. Inducted into the CCBL Hall of Fame, the Cape Cod Baseball League Hall of Fame, as a Chatham A. I don't want to say that that's who uh, Freddie Prinze Jr.'s character was based on in Summer Catch, but more than likely, uh, it was. <laughs> Gotta be right. Yeah, definitely. All right, and my last card, I'm at 21.8. I have gone downhill since <laughs> the last couple of cards, but uh, my last card, L, oh, is a pitcher for the Cubs, who's my team. So uh, there's a half a point right there. It's Les Lancaster. Was Les a lefty? No, he was a, uh, a righty. Bummer. Lefty Les Lancaster sounds kind of cool. Let's see. Les Lancaster, seven years in the big leagues, five with Chicago, one for St. Louis, one for Detroit. In 91, uh, as a part-time starter, he went 9-7 and seven with a 3.52 ERA, had three saves, 102 strikeouts in 156 innings, a 110 ERA+. Plus, and that is good for a war of 1.7, plus he's a cub, so that'll be 2.2, but he does have two and ones on, so that'll only be a 2.1. Only. Uh, now, do I get any extra points for him being the recipient of the Buckeye Newshawk Award, as well as the Silver Sow Award and uh, a one-time winner of the Copper Cobb Award? <laughs> I think all three of those are on our major awards list. Yeah. Oh, wait, that's my bad. That's Les Nessman. Oh, Les Nessman, oh, not yes. Les Lancaster. So, yeah, that's that nice. one's on me. It did sound familiar. Yeah. <laughs> all right, but you know what? Uh, 23.9. Uh, I almost <laughs> by, almost times uh, your score by four. Ah, but of nice. course, this doesn't mean Jack. So it uh, doesn't really help me. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up the uh, the penultimate uh, exhibition game from uh, Wax Packs Heroes. We're getting close. We're uh, finalizing some of these new rules by adding the uh, the Simpsons today. So that's uh, that's got to be exciting. But uh, that will wrap up this episode of Wax Packs Heroes. It's also going to do it for this episode of uh, the show. We appreciate everybody listening. And uh, Mark, we're getting close to opening day, so we really need to bear down and uh, be ready for our final exhibition next week. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm in good form after that one. Yeah, I, I'm a little uh, I'm a little tense now. I wouldn't worry too much. Uh, we're known to fold once the regular season starts. But uh, nonetheless, thank you all for listening. If you cannot get enough of us, you can find us on all the socials. We are at Two Strike Noise. That is at TWO Strike Noise. You can find all the links as well in the show notes. And uh, you can also find an email address there, Mark. Sure. You can write to us at Two Strike Noise, TWO Strike Noise at Gmail. All right, that'll do it. We'll see you next week on another episode of Two Throwover Noise. Thank you. God bless you. Have a great day. <laughs> <laughs>